You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Welcome to Wiley Connected, a podcast from Wiley Ryan. We're here today with Brendan Schulman from the drone company DJI. And we're excited to talk to Brendan about some of the policy challenges, technology issues that are confronting the drone industry today, uh, and some of the things that we're going to need to solve if we're going to see even broader adoption of drones uh, and see the technology really come to its fruition. Uh, My name is Josh Turner. I'm a partner in our TMT practice, that's Technology, Media, and Telecommunications. And I co-chair our Unmanned Aircraft Systems practice with Anna Gomez, who is joining me as well today. I am Anna Gomez, and I co-chair the Wiley Unmanned Aircraft Systems Group, and I am also a partner in the Wiley Telecom Media and Technology Practice Group, working on a variety of matters before the Federal Communications Commission and the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, and I am delighted as well to be joining this conversation with Brendan. So, Brendan, I know one of the things about you is you have a really neat origin story for how you sort of got into the drone world. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started in this area? Yeah, I'd be happy to, and thanks for having me on on the podcast. It is unusual. I I guess it starts 25 years ago when I uh, became a model aircraft enthusiast, literally building these things out of balsa and plastic and flying them around with little gas engines. Little did I know that, you know, two decades later, Aviation would be in the midst of a revolution we now call UAS. And so there I was, in uh, much like you, in private practice at a large firm, although in my case in New York, and I realized there was going to be this this moment in which the regulations, the laws would would need to change and and be adapted to a a whole different kind of technology and yet integrate into an, an aviation system. So I happened to have the opportunity to take on some of the really early cases in UAS law, namely the Perker case, which involved the very first FAA civil penalty against model aircraft or UAS operator. And then after that, the uh, Texas EquiSearch case, which involved a not-for-profit group in Texas that wanted to use UAS for volunteer search and rescue. So this was back in 2014. When the FAA was saying, you can't do that, we don't have rules for operating a UAS other than for strictly recreational purposes, that didn't seem right. We were obviously holding back life-saving innovation, so uh, represented them in their uh, legal issue with the FAA. Uh, and then on to regulatory proposals involving micro-UAS and, and a few other things and uh, some investigations and civil penalty actions that, uh, that are not public. Uh, but really, it was uh, an entry into the world of the emerging legal framework for, for UAS. And then a couple years into that, DGA recruited me to really lead their public policy and, and build the department to engage with the policymakers on, you know, what are the appropriate risk-based, reasonable ways to regulate UAS? The answer can't be, no, we don't have rules, so you can't save a life. And we needed to, to work together and collaborate on solutions to all the kinds of risks that might be posed by a small unmanned aircraft system. So it's really been a privilege uh, since 2015, uh, so coming up now in five years, to work for DJI to help advocate for technology that's really a personal passion of mine and to see it flourish into what it is today. Even already, we've got, I think, over 410 
people who've been rescued using small UAS that we've counted just from media reports. So to a, a large extent, my fantasy has been fulfilled that I've been able to work on technology I love uh, with the legal expertise I happen to have and try to bring people together, solve problems, bring technology solutions in. DJI has given me the opportunity to do things like geofencing, remote ID, knowledge testing, ADSB. We can talk about all those things, uh, but it's truly been a unique journey the past seven or eight years uh, in this field. Brennan, you mentioned DJI, which I think everyone who listens to this podcast knows, but probably not everyone knows how DJI got its start, which has a neat origin story. Please tell us about how DJI got started. Yeah, I, I think that's important and not too many people know about it. And certainly there are a number of myths about it out there. So DJI was founded by Frank Wang in his dorm room in engineering school. Now that school happened to be in Hong Kong and much like a Silicon Valley startup story, whether it's a garage or a dorm room or right out of college kind of story, same kind of thing. He and his friends got together. He was an enthusiast, much like I am for radio control technologies. And, but he had this vision that if he could make what was then a model airplane or helicopter easy to fly, if you could stabilize the camera uh, and add a few other modern features, you'd have a very powerful aerial photography platform particularly for aerial cinematography and taking shots, video shots in ways that are not only uh, unique and low cost, but also safer. And so that was his vision going back at this point, I, I think 13, maybe 14 years. And he's always been gifted in terms of figuring out what the technology should be, the products, product strategy. And, and of course, a, a little bit lucky in terms of being in the right place at the right time, having the leading product all the way along through that era I was talking about 2012, 13, 14, 15, when civilian recreational and light commercial UAS really took off. Uh, so it was sort of right place at the right time with the right idea. And I think we've seen that story before in other technology areas. This one's a little different because the company is based in China. Well, and that leads perhaps into the sort of first topic uh, we can talk about, which is I know the, the subject of Chinese drones has been much on the, the minds of everyone in Washington recently. Supply chain issues generally are, are a topic that has come up and, and sort of dogged the telecommunications industry. DJI has been perhaps subtweeted in a lot of those discussions, um, the sort of obvious target, but, but the one that people don't really name. You know, talk a little bit about DJI's response to that and, and how you deal with those kinds of allegations. Yeah, well, look, first of all, I, again, I was hired by the company to promote the cause of innovation. And it's never mattered to me, you know, which brand the policy is about. To me, it's it's about unlocking and promoting innovation. And, and that lifts all boats. Uh, some of the best work I've done at DJI has been with U.S. companies like GoPro and 3DR, where we work together on on the solutions to risk, whether whether real or perceived. I do think we're in a political moment, and, and so things have changed, largely in part due to the political environment, the, the trade disputes with China, as well as the way in which cybersecurity is, is often used as e either a reason or, or perhaps a pretext for policies that otherwise wouldn't make sense if you thought about them objectively. So, you know, this is, I know, a topic that came up in one of your recent prior podcasts, and I, you know, honestly, I heard a few things on there that didn't make sense to me, you know, one, one of which was that drones are an IoT device, and that's not necessarily true. Although they can be connected to the internet, they're not the same 
as telecom infrastructure. So the idea that we need to be paranoid about them as we might about a piece of telecom infrastructure just doesn't make sense if you understand the technology, you have the knowledge of how it's used. It's really more like a flying camera and you decide where you point that camera at. You've got control over the technology full stop. And if you're someone who works on a sensitive project, maybe that's not the project for a drone at all or that particular kind of drone, but that's entirely within your control. It's not something connected to bank accounts and email and text messages and phone calls, things like that. So that, that obviously is something that needs to be appreciated. What is this technology? What does it do? Uh, and it's not the same as other technologies that raise different kinds of concerns. But then there's this allegation that, that's been sort of uh, persistently out there, sometimes tied with our name and sometimes not, about data automatically going back to China, that, that somehow our products are, are designed or, in fact, do siphon off uh, the flight log records, the videos, the photographs that you take with the drone. And that's, that's simply not true. Number one, you know that as the user because you can turn off the connection. There's no need to connect to the internet. Uh, and you can also monitor and see whether anything's going in the internet. So you can prove that yourself. But on top of that, we've had a number of validations or, or studies of our technology over the past few years, I think at least five, which have all come to basically the same kind of conclusion, the most recent of which is the Booz Allen Hamilton analysis, which everyone should read in its entirety so that it's fully understood. Uh, but you know, one of the most important takeaways from my perspective is that there was no evidence of data connections to China or to DJI. And that's you know, one of a number of similar kinds of conclusions. And in the face of that, the allegations have never come with evidence or, or proof uh, that, in fact, data is involuntarily or surreptitiously uh, being transferred anywhere. You know, the things that we've done are obviously, like, how do you prove a negative? Well, certainly we've included features that uh, enhance the control that people have over data. Uh, things like local data mode, where you can disconnect the transfer of any data to the internet. We also were approached by the Department of the Interior uh, at their request to create a solution uh, for them, uh, since there's no standard or, or target that otherwise is out there and articulated as to what you're supposed to do with drone data security. So we, we worked with them on it, produced a, a product that actually two products that met their needs and that were validated by them and NASA and the Idaho National Laboratory on behalf of DHS CISA and a private company, all of which validated that that solution met their needs for their mission, which is wildfire fighting, natural resources missions, search and rescue, things that, by the way, are not particularly sensitive in the first place. But nonetheless, given that they're a federal agency, they should have confidence that their data is under their control, and it was. And yet, a few months later after that was announced, the program was shut down. I think really that, in a way, is, is a self-contained story about how the politics have overwhelmed the facts and the reality out there. And that's really unfortunate because as someone who really cares about these products being used to prevent harm, to rescue people, to fight fires, to do good for the American public, we're now in a situation where clearly uh, the politics are getting in the way of risk-based, fact-based policy, as well as outcomes that are important for the American public, including those conducted by federal agencies. Broadening the issue to risk in general, 
What we have seen is the FAA has slowed down putting out any new rules to allow expanded operations because of the concern by the security agencies of potential malicious use of unmanned aircraft. The FAA finally released the remote ID notice of proposed rulemaking, which hopefully will alleviate some of those concerns. What are your thoughts on that remote ID rulemaking? That's a really important topic. Um, and, and in the industry, we've observed that the rulemaking has been on hold since I think early 2016. It's amazing to think it's been that long because of the lack of remote ID. So as just an example of what we've tried to do to, to move things forward, we developed a solution that we thought would work immediately, and it does. There's all kinds of great stories. But setting aside what, what we're trying to do to contribute to good solutions, uh, I think this is a really key issue because you've got maybe another example, like the last one we just discussed, of uh, security concerns overwhelming the promulgation of a risk-based framework that actually would enable beneficial applications and assist the American public by making jobs safer, saving lives, you know, operations at night and over people are obviously beneficial in many ways. We've long supported remote ID. I personally think it makes a lot of sense for anyone who's operating a drone that could pose the kinds of safety or security issues that we worried about to be accountable. And so the question then is, well, how do you do that? And by the way, how do you do it in a way that's successful? Because I want it to succeed. We don't want to create a solution that doesn't work. Otherwise, we continue to be stuck and we continue to not have progress in the industry. So what works from my perspective, and you can go all the way back to March 2017 with our white paper on this, is a solution that's as low cost as possible and that respects the privacy of the drone operators because there is privacy interest in their operations. We, we've asserted that, ironically, before all this intrigue about DJI data security, was DJI on the record, I think first in the industry, if you look at those white papers from the spring of 2017, saying one of the most important outcomes here is going to be how do you protect the privacy of the drone operator? I don't know anyone, anyone else in the industry who was on record at that time in that way. So how do you do that? That's debatable, but I think at a minimum, if the solution isn't reasonably low priced, then people just aren't going to do it. The technology is too widely available. You can build this stuff in your garage. There's actually hundreds of small companies that produce drone products, particularly drone racing type products, knockoff uh, Chinese competitors uh, who aren't as engaged as we are in, in regulatory solutions. There's no way you're going to succeed on remote ID if the burdens you impose on the end user are high, including cost, complexity, and privacy. And so our perspective is make this simple, get it done the right way, uh, and don't try to make it perfect or you will end up with a system that's, let's say only has 60% participation, and then it's useless for identifying friend from foe, which is supposedly the, the driving uh, purpose behind remote ID in the first place is to help the security agencies figure out whether the drone that's flying by is supposed to be there or not. I want that solution to exist. I'm very worried from the NPRM that we're going down a very expensive path. We actually retain NERA, very uh, well-known economics uh, consulting firm, and they concluded that the cost would be nine times the FA estimate, something like five and a half billion dollars. That's just way too much. Like we can't 
expect the industry, particularly as it exists today, to bear that kind of cost just to put a license plate on a drone. So a key issue to move everything forward, and, and we're as eager as anyone else to move forward with the, the rulemaking for flight over people, night operations, and everything else that follows, we've got to get past this remote ID issue and, and do it in a way that makes sense. And how do you see, I mean, I know I, one of the things that you all have been championing at DJI is this idea of a broadcast-only standard, right, that you, in line with sort of low cost, that you'd be able to operate your drone just broadcasting from the aircraft as opposed to having a network connection. Why do you think that the FAA is so committed to the idea of having network connection? Is it because they're looking to build a UTM framework, or is there some other explanation for it? Well, our position isn't that broadcast is the only solution. Our, our position is tech-neutral, performance-based approach. So if you can do remote ID in a way that's feasible, you should do it. You should have an option. So typically, that means an option between network and broadcast. Your question on why does the FAA I don't know if prefer is the right word, but at least in the NPRM insist that you have to connect to the internet to the network solution if you can. That's a good question because there's no explanation in the NPRM other than the solution is more complete if you do it both ways, both broadcast and network wherever possible. And sure, like there's lots of things that are more complete if you do all of the above. You know, let's let's network all the cars and you'd have perfect compliance on speed limits and traffic lights and and yet I think the American public would reject that as being intrusive and costly, uh, notwithstanding the 30,000 lives a year you'd save uh, from increasing compliance with the traffic laws by totally monitoring all movement of vehicles in the country. I think there's something like 8,000 unsolved hit and runs every year in this country. Well, you'd solve all of those if you tracked all the cars. So it can't be that the answer is, well, we should have it because it's more complete and that justifies the cost. Regulation is supposed to be a balance between government need as well as burdens and costs imposed on those who have to comply. And I didn't see that balancing taking place in the, in the NPRM. I do agree with you that it probably to some extent it reflects a desire to move forward on future initiatives, including UTM. That's great. We support UTM, particularly to the extent it will bring complex operations such as beyond visual line of sight, which have benefits. So it makes sense to pay for something if you're the recipient of a benefit. But today, you can do a lot without UTM, uh, including saving those 410 people from peril, making jobs safer, finding missing people, fighting fire, all the things we always talk about in this industry, you can do today. Um, there's some things you can't. And for those, there is a value in that solution that is obviously going to be over the network, and we fully support that. But we need to make sure we understand uh, what the costs and benefits are uh, to all the stakeholders uh, in the industry, including the you know, million plus registered operators that already exist and the 150,000 Part 107 certificated pilots. Like there's a huge existing community of operators who may or may not benefit from connected solutions. And it, it's only fair to take their interests into account. We should explain that UTM is the unmanned aircraft traffic management system that is currently under development by NASA and the FAA. Yes, thank you. You've been involved in unmanned aircraft systems policy since very early in the development of recent regulations for small unmanned aircraft system operations. We started out not 
so much at the FAA, but more on the privacy front, because there was a concern that until the public accepted the use of unmanned aircraft more broadly, it was going to be difficult to move forward with expanded deployments. Since then, that seems to have morphed into more security issues, yet the concern now about privacy is back in the realm as we address remote ID. I, I agree things come and go in terms of what's of top concern. I don't think the privacy concern has gone away, but I do think with the greater awareness of what drones do, people maybe are starting to realize that drones are not the surveillance tool that people were worried about. You know, there isn't a fleet of drones spying on people in their backyards because like, who really wants to do that? and that there's existing law uh, uh, that covers that kind of concern. You know, the question is, well, what's missing from the policy we already have that addresses concerns like that? Well, one thing is accountability, right? So like you can have an existing privacy law, but if you can't find the drone operator, then it's not much use. So that's where remote ID is also useful and one of the reasons we support it. But again, if people aren't using remote ID, then you're gonna continue to have this demand to solve the privacy issue as well, typically with flight restrictions. So I think that issue has morphed to some extent, uh, as Josh knows, into a concern about property rights and trespassing kinds of theories. We've seen that come and go over the years. I think there's some reason to think that the security concerns have definitely been driving the, the policy directions for the past few years. That's remote ID. That's the holdup on flight over people and, and night operations. And honestly, you could probably tie it to the to the China-related stuff that we talked about. Like in this industry, whether you like it or not, security has become the driving force or the blocker behind policy for the past you know two or maybe four years. And I I think that's probably not a good thing overall for one only one interest to be driving things. But I, that's I think that's a fair observation that that has become the driver. It's an interesting point uh, that you raise about security being the driving force in, in a number of these conversations. And you also mentioned this idea of balancing the risks versus the harms. And one of the, one of the problems you have when security is, is one of the driving forces is that you don't have the full picture. The policymakers and certainly the public can't have the full picture of what those risks are because there are some obviously very valid concerns that need to remain low key or, or maybe even classified about risks and so forth. How do you think we as policymakers can deal with that? I mean, how do we how do we address the sort of idea that there, yes, are very legitimate security concerns and, and maybe even specific security concerns that we can't or don't know about with this sort of idea that, you know, everyone's got to have enough information to make a reasonable choice about putting off the benefits, the obvious benefits that we've talked about in favor of, of mitigating these risks? I guess I start by asking why, why is that question unique to UAS or, or to drones? Um, it's not. We've dealt with security issues and other technologies and other industries. I think we know how to do that, right? The, the way to do it is not to say this country is bad or I've got a file in my back room that, that proves the things I'm saying about you, but I can't tell you what that is. And therefore it becomes this sneaky thing I I trot out when I'm doing my marketing for my product. Uh, that's just not right. You know, the way to address security issues is to set a standard that anyone can try to meet and test the product, see how the product actually functions. If you go down this road of shortcuts and and, and just labels, um, 
where do you stop? You know, is it one component versus another in the technology? Well, that's kind of silly because over time stuff gets integrated uh, into one component. Uh, is it, you know, why is it just drones? Why not the, the technology we're using right now? I'm using a webcam, a laptop, a ethernet adapter, Wi-Fi, you know, any of these products is made in a, in a country you might not like. Uh, so it can't be that. Uh, and it can't be that there's a secret room full of documents. It, it should be evidence-based and risk-based, just like we talk about on the safety side of UAS. You know, if the, you could just as easily say, drones should never fly near an airport. It's just too dangerous. Well, there's all kinds of great work being done at and by airports, including at the Memphis airport in the FAA's integration pilot program, showing that drones do belong at airports, or at least an attempt should be made with the proper risk mitigation for that context. So, and of course, it's operationally dependent. Like, how are you using the technology when I, the standard that would apply to a military operation, of course, is going to be higher than an operation that involves firefighting. And yet, the demands of one agency or the policy desires are being sort of pushed down more broadly in some of these proposals we've seen, uh, not only on all federal agencies, potentially, but anyone receiving federal funding, uh, anyone who's flying over or near federal land. I mean, that is not a security-based assessment at all. That's just market manipulation and protectionism with an excuse of cybersecurity so that it, it, it becomes acceptable to do something that I don't think anyone who understands security would say is the right way to solve a problem. And in fact, it creates a vulnerability in that you're looking in the wrong direction. Like, what about products that are made in a different country? Uh, now you've given truly bad guys an opportunity vector for a nefarious opportunity because you think you've taken care of a problem one way when in fact you haven't. But th none of this is unique to drones. So like, why, why pick on us, whether, whether you're a policymaker or a, a concerned stakeholder in the industry, everyone who should be asking, you know, wh why are drones so susceptible or, or amenable to this kind of proposal when we don't see it elsewhere. And I, no one has answered that question, at least not to me. I know the IPP is scheduled to end this year. There hasn't been a whole lot of appetite to extend it. There's a lot of question about sort of what comes next and how do we uh, expand operations? How do we authorize additional commercial operations? You know, how do we get more products in the air? Um, and, and while all of the innovation that you're talking about is great, um, it doesn't help if you can't actually fly the aircraft. Right? If you can't use the aircraft in a way that is sort of maximally innovative, if you don't have the regulatory tool chest to do that, you know, you're stuck. And, and so what do you think, you know, I mean, sort of putting your, your crystal ball in front of you, how do you see the industry evolving? How do you see the regulatory picture evolving over the next six to 12 months in a way that after the IPP winds down, you know, replaces that? How do you see things moving forward from here? That's a, a good but, but tough question. I, I, I <laughs> I think we need the FAA to move forward. Uh, we, we've been stalled for a while, primarily on remote ID, but on some other things that are important, right? We still don't have the Section 2209 process. Again, for those not as familiar as we are, that's uh, from the I think 2016 bill that says the FAA should stand up a process to create flight restrictions around critical infrastructure and, and similar types of locations where a drone flight would raise a significant national security concern. I think that's a great idea. In fact, if they were to do that, we would probably geofence those locations so as to help our customers 
not fly inadvertently in those locations. So we would use technology to facilitate the U.S. government outcome, but we still don't have that uh, process from the FAA, although uh, I think it was supposed to be done by 2017. Um, similarly, we, we believe knowledge and education are important. There's supposed to be a recreational user knowledge test from the FAA. That's not been completed. I think remote ID, it's already taken a long time. We sat on a committee in 2017, the Aviation Rulemaking Committee on this. We worked intensively through the summer on the understanding that there was an urgent need for it and a deadline that we needed to meet in order to move that forward. And then we waited two years for the proposal, which in, in many respects um, ignored or declined to follow the recommendations of the committee. Uh, and so you've got like things at the FAA not happening or not happening in the way that the industry is suggesting. Actually, you have a number of, of uh, tasks, uh, task group reports at the DAC, the Drone Advisory Committee, that I think also could probably be moved forward in terms of uh, improving the waiver process, access to controlled airspace and the Lance grids, that's the controlled airspace approval system. So there's like a variety of examples where I think, you know, at some point the industry can only do so much. We, we need the regulators and the policymakers to move things forward as well so we can take things to the next level. The IVP is another example of that. That is designed to take three years. That's not behind schedule at all. In fact, I'm looking forward to to hearing what was what was learned from that, and hopefully, that won't just sit on some desk somewhere, but actually will turn into useful uh, progressive rules or or approaches to granting approvals of advanced operations. But you know, I think that will depend on on what was learned in, in those projects, and I, I'm eager to to see that as well. For our listeners, one of the things that, that Brendan and I have been involved in uh, over the past year or so was uh, something called the Uniform Law Commission, which had been considering a, a state law, uniform law that would have been proposed and adopted throughout the states to try and bring some uh, uniformity to the way in which property law treats uh, drone overflights. That ultimately was not a successful endeavor, and, and the Uniform Law Commission has tabled their proposal, but there are other areas where people are thinking about similar sorts of things. The ALI, the American Law Institute, is, is, has something underway. State legislatures have not taken a break. Brendan, what do you see as the sort of next frontier in this state regulatory area? And, and how do you see the drone industry working with states and local governments to try and improve understanding and acceptance in those places? I think this is one of the most important issues we need to address as an industry. I, I've been saying that for a while. In fact, I think I said it at the very first DAC meeting, Drone Advisory Committee meeting, which led to a, a task group there that, that tried to address the issue or at least come up with creative solutions. This is a tough one because I, I think it's really important for us to address the concerns of communities and, and local government about this new form of aviation and the way in which uh, these uh, technologies are used. On the other hand, it's so important to have a consistent set of rules and, and a centralized authority for, for safety purposes because it is airspace and it's always going to interact with uh, traditional aircraft. So you can't just separate the two. You can't just pick an altitude and say, Here, here's the line in the sky. I think remote ID is going to help a lot, just like that privacy example from few minutes ago, if we have the means to hold people accountable in the rare case when they do something wrong, like uh, unlawful surveillance using a drone, 
that's a good result for the industry that that there's a means to hold people accountable. And I think that will go a long way in addressing some of the local concerns, but of course it doesn't exist yet. And, and so the proxy for holding someone accountable when you can't is to restrict the conduct from happening in the first place. Like, well, I, we can't find the bad guys, so no one can fly a drone in the city because we can't solve the crime when it does occur. I kind of understand that frustration. But we, you know, on that drone advisory committee task group, we spent, I think it was like 15 days together in person discussing possible ideas and, and, and alternatives to cooperative federalism. And we had some really great and important ideas, uh, some of which were, were issued uh, on paper, and you can go back and read that. And not only is it a complicated question because of the air safety concerns, but I think it's become a political challenge as well. The question of who gets to govern and, and therefore who gets to tax the operations, I think is an, an unstated part of this whole puzzle is like at some point, if there's revenue in drone operations, someone wants it. You know, I worry that good policy outcomes are, are, are being overlooked because someone is just interested in a revenue stream at some point. And that, that, that would be harmful to the innovation that I set out to advocate for. So I, I'm totally in favor of trying to figure out real uh, workable solutions that balance the interest here and solve problems. But I can't support an outcome such as what we saw proposed at the Uniform Law Commission that would just you know, arbitrarily draw a line and say, okay, now, now we're done. This doesn't solve a problem. You're still going to have intrusions from higher than that altitude. Uh, and you're going to have many legitimate life-saving, important operations below that altitude. Plus, you have the complication of not being able to really easily measure altitude just by looking up from the ground. So plenty of false reports, false alarms, and confusion uh, on the operator side and on the public side. That's not good. Uh, and I think could just be a worse outcome for everyone. So at some point, I think we need to try to revisit the dialogue that, that was attempted at the Drone Advisory Committee. See if we can put reasonable minds in a room, not people with agendas or people who are just there to derail things, but have a genuine conversation about what might work. One of the things we looked at in the in the task group in the DAC was EPA environmental context and regulation. You know, you have federal environmental standards, but often you have state level environmental agencies investigating and taking enforcement, and the two levels of government work together in a way that's that's supportive and cooperative because the goal of course is to protect the environment and that's something that all levels of government want to do well i would like to think that all levels of government want to promote innovation and protect people against harm and privacy violations and other kinds of risk and if we could just get like the, the people to focus on that maybe we finally get somewhere but you know this has been uh now i don't know four years uh, uh, of trying to figure out a creative solution. And I, you know, I, my mind is open. I would love to, to continue those conversations. Well, it, it strikes me that as with a lot of this stuff, one of the problems that you have is that the industry has been constrained in how much it can do. And so the, the, the consequence of that is that people don't see the good that the drones can do. They don't see the operations. And so their concerns, you know, are sort of the only thing they've got, right? This sort of imagination of what this might look like when their sky is thick with drones and I don't know what good those are going to do. I don't see how I benefit. You know, there's no way to sort of provide the counterexample that says, 
well, yeah, but Postmates just delivered your burrito to the front door and that drone saved the life of your dog. And, you know, it, it, countless other ways that you personally benefit from this technology. And it, in the absence of that, it's really hard to sort of prove what those benefits are going to be like and get people to understand them. Yeah. And these are the myths we've lived with for years, right? We started off with the drones are coming to America and they're military drones, like the kind used overseas to, to kill people. Well, no, they're not. Then the backyard privacy issue, aviation safety near misses. Well, we, we just did a data study showing there have been over 10 million flight hours in 2019 of small UAS, zero fatalities. That's a pretty remarkable record. Just in the United States, you could probably triple that for the world. Um, remarkable safety record. So when you look at the data, look at the facts, the, the fear is not founded. And I really think anyone in the industry should consider what this myth about Chinese data transfer is doing to the industry. I, I don't think anyone who believes in risk-based policies, uh, innovation that's that's based on uh, facts and, and evidence and, and uh, tech-neutral standards, anyone who wants good outcomes on some policy in this industry, whether it's UTM or remote ID, uh, to allow one aspect of it, namely cybersecurity, uh, to be ruled by non-risk-based policies, fears instead of facts, that's bad for everyone. That, that's something that should be alarming, that, that drones are called out specifically for legislation or even executive action, unlike other technologies. And the policy substantively is not about mitigating risk. It's just about not even a shortcut, but almost a discrimination against a certain aspect of the technology. If you did that uh, in other drone policy issues, you kill the industry. And I, really, it's alarming to me, you know, stepping out of this role that I've had for five years, but going back to, you know, pre-DJI, if someone said to me back then, oh, the solution to security is just to ban the Chinese products, I'd say, that's crazy. Like, that's not something an objective person should ever support, because it would be the equivalent of saying drones should never fly in cities, or should never fly below 200 feet. And where would we be with that kind of mentality prevailing in drone policy, we'd be in trouble. So th this whole direction in the past year or two has been very concerning to me personally. I was hoping, Brendan, you can tell me if DJI has anything new and cool under development. <laughs> we like to geek out. That's great. Everyone wants to know what we're working on next. I can't tell you that. <laughs> uh, we, ha we have had two, two new products lately. Uh, the M300 series RTK, which um, uh, it's a phenomenal industrial drone. I, I, I'm not going to give you the tech specs, but it's 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 kind of amazing how far we've come in terms of industrial solutions that really can work in robust, heavy-duty environments. But then on the other end, we've got the uh, the Mavic Air 2, which is kind of a well-positioned, um, affordable yet highly capable drone that's you know similar in some ways to our our mavic uh mavic pro or mavic 2 series um but the, the thing i'd love to highlight apropos of this conversation with the mavic air 2 is our commitment to safety that, that product includes adsb in receivers and this is a, a commitment we made a year ago again uh, my initiation of you know safety programs at DJI, what more can we do besides geofencing and remote ID? What more can we do to deal with real risk, not fake phantom risk, but real risks 
that we that we've observed based on data, including actual collisions with helicopters. Uh, geofencing doesn't help you with helicopters because they fly everywhere. And the answer to me was, well, let's leverage existing technology. ADSB uh, not only exists, but FAA has a program to mandate it starting in 2020 in controlled airspace. Basically, what a great way to to create synergy with that by equipping the drones with ADSB in receivers, so that our drone customers can see the surrounding air traffic if it has ADSB uh, and take uh, uh, maneuvers to avoid collisions if they are imminent. So I like to think that we've made a difference on that. Well, sort of like proving the negative on, on data security, we'll never prove that we avoided a collision because it didn't happen. Uh, and yet I, I'm very happy that we've been able to bring a solution like that into a product as small as the Mavic Air 2, which is, uh, I, I don't have one with me here, but it, it's one of our smaller products. And it was not easy getting that technology into that product, particularly in light of the supply chain disruptions stemming from the COVID pandemic. But we did it. I'm proud that we did it. And, and we look forward to, to doing more on safety. Is it something that the, the user sort of sees on a screen and, and then is able to avoid the aircraft? Yeah, the nearby aircraft, again, they have to broadcast ADSB, but uh, they'll appear on the on-screen map during the flight operation. If the aircraft look like, looks like it's approaching on a collision path, the technology will start to notify and sound alarms and vibrate uh, to bring that to the uh, drone user's attention. So it's sort of a, a, a different level approach uh, to awareness. And, and, and the, the more dangerous the apparent situation, the, the higher level of alert the uh, drone pilot will receive. Great. Well, I want to thank you, Brendan, for coming in today virtually uh, and having this conversation. Uh, it was illuminating as always. And I really appreciate you taking the time to sort of share your insights and your thoughts with us. Thank you, Brandon. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. All right. This has been uh, Wiley Connected's podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.